Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and how everything everywhere is happening so much all the time. Today on the show, Canada is accusing India of a state-sanctioned assassination. And parental rights, an opioid crisis, and the missing Indigenous women whose bodies are presumed to be in a Winnipeg landfill have been front of mind in the coming Manitoba provincial election. This week on the show, we're doing things a little bit differently because we have two very different segments and we want to make sure that you receive the most pertinent insights from the people who know the most about both of these topics. We actually have different panelists for each segment, so let's get into it. Hardeep Singh Nijar was a Canadian citizen assassinated in Canada, presumably by a foreign government. It was recently learned that Canadian national security authorities have credible intelligence that agents of the government of India carried out the shooting of Najjar in mid-June. The Globe and Mail was poised to publish a story based on information that they had obtained from insider sources. They warned the PMO before they were set to publish and were told to hold the story. But then the next day, Justin Trudeau went public and beat the globe to it. Over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. But this story doesn't just start with the assassination. Najjar's son says that prior to his father's death, his father had been meeting with CSIS officers once or twice a week, and he also had attended a meeting with the RCMP last year where they were all told about threats to Najjar's life. Our top priorities have therefore been, one, that our law enforcement and security agencies ensure the continued safety of all Canadians, and two, that all steps be taken 
to hold perpetrators of this murder to account. The Indian government has denied all responsibility for the shooting and argues that Ottawa's investigation has been misled by accusations from Canadian Sikhs involved with the Khalistan separatist movement. The Indian government maintains that Najjar was a terrorist. But Canada is a country of diasporas, many of which have fled violence or have their roots in communities that have fled violence in the past. Many Punjabi Sikhs in Canada originally came here seeking refuge from pogroms and extrajudicial killings in India. And what Najjar was doing, calling for separatist politics, is not illegal here in Canada. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. What does it mean for a foreign government to have possibly executed a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil? And what does that mean for this country's relationship with India? We have an expert in the house. It's Candleland's very own host of Commons, Arshi Mann. Arshi, always good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I think one thing that's been a bit glossed over in some of the coverage that I've seen of this is the fact that Najjar was actually assassinated in a Gurdwara, so a a place of worship, and it's your hometown Gurdwara, in fact. How have you been feeling just as, as all of this news has been coming out? I mean, it's been a bit surreal. I used to go to this Gurdwara as a kid. I mean, we went to many different Gurdwaras in Surrey. My mom liked to kind of shop around. But this is probably the place that I have the earliest kind of memories from. It was, you know, 12 blocks from where I grew up. And it's the oldest Gurdwara in Surrey. And I think a lot of Sikhs who grew up in the area, you know, know the Scott Road Gurdwara very well. So, you know, the gall to shoot somebody dozens of times at a place of worship, at a, at a Gurdwara, you know, to me feels as much like a hate crime as an assassination. You know, this really sends a message to the Sikh community that even in your places of worship, you're not safe. I found it surprising that that aspect of it wasn't highlighted more in the coverage. In instances where these sorts of things happen at a church, at a synagogue, or at a mosque, that tends to be highlighted a lot more in the coverage of it. You know, obviously it's shocking and and horrifying, I think, to the people that are close to it. But things can be shocking and horrifying and still be somewhat expected while being awful at the same time. Is this something that the community saw coming or was surprised by, or was it completely out of the blue? You know, when the news of Hardeep Singh Nijar's murder came out a few months ago, everybody knew. Mm-hmm. It was, it, you know, it was the assumption that this was obviously the the Indian government. Mm-hmm. I think people were still shocked that there was a murder taking place on Canadian soil that we believe to be at the hands of the Indian government. Mm-hmm. But there's been an escalation mm-hmm. in terms of both the Indian government and government-related media's rhetoric about Canadian Sikhs. And, you know, actions of of kind of foreign interference. People experience it both in their day-to-day lives and they see, you know, news stories, uh, you know, not usually from the English language press, mm-hmm. frankly, but from either Punjabi language media in Canada or, you know, some outlets like like Boz News that cover this kind of thing. You know, in in some ways, I think a lot of people felt like both anger, but also a sense of relief when Justin Trudeau actually, you know, said what we all knew to be true mm-hmm. in the House of Commons, because the assumption was Canada would never say anything mm-hmm. like this, even if it was true. You know, the, the liberal government has been quite friendly with India, despite, you know, how they're portrayed in the Indian press. You know, I do think a lot of people felt like, okay, finally, maybe some level of the gaslighting is kind of over. Not that I see a lot of, like, 
media from India, right? But I feel like especially now that Twitter is like completely broken and never shows you any of the shit that you want to see, I've been seeing a lot of like blue check, big BJP stan accounts is really the only way that I can phrase it, right? Just saying the the wildest stuff. And you look at what the coverage of this sort of thing is like in sort of mainstream Indian conservative media, and it's like completely bananas bonkers. And so I, I can imagine to have, you know, the media here outside of like Punjabi language or, or Boz News, like that kind of press, not covering the issue, and then like any Indian press talking about it, just saying ridiculously like jingoistic things. It must be, yeah, somewhat nice, I suppose, to have that confirmation. It definitely is. But like the thing is, even if you're not going out and reading Indian media, a lot of the stories about sick issues, frankly, in Canada have been filtered through the Indian media. Mm-hmm. You know, take take Hardeep Singh Nidra, for instance. A few years ago, there were reports in places like the Vancouver Sun mm-hmm. that Hardeep Singh Nidra was running a terrorist training camp in Mission, B.C., which like is bizarre for one, anybody who's from the lower mainland, to imagine a terrorist (laughs) training camp in mission. But the reason that those reports were, you know, coming out is because the Indian press was putting out these kinds of accusations and the Canadian press would simply parrot them, Mm -hmm. right? And, And there is now even a kind of symbiotic relationship between the kind of, I'd say, anti-sick elements of the Canadian press and the Indian press, right? Terry mm-hmm. Malevsky, former CBC journalist, has basically found a second career as a right-wing talking head in India, right? You know, appearing on Indian nationalist kind of TV programs, writing for the RSS's magazine. This is, the, you know, the extreme right-wing kind of Hindu nationalist movement in in India. It's It's been very, very interesting to to kind of watch that. And, you know, for me, I was kind of hoping that like this, this murder and this announcement, at least, would finally change the way that the Canadian press has to cover this story. Now, I want to just talk about like, you know, who Hardeep Singh Nijar was and like why the Indian government even saw him as a threat. They've basically claimed that he was the head of something called the Khalistan Tiger Force, Mm -hmm. which seems absurd on its face. I mean, this guy was a plumber, living in Surrey, who did not have, like, major, you know, sway or or profile in India or even in Canada outside of, of his small community, you know, in Surrey, outside of the Gurdwara where he was uh, elected to run. He was helping organize a referendum, an absolutely non-binding referendum in the diaspora, you know, in favor of Khalistan or against. And that is the reason India saw him as a threat. All indications seem to point to that. Those stories that I talked about earlier appearing in the Indian media and then later in which he was accused of running a terrorist training camp, those came out after Hardeep Singh Nijar started to work on the Khalistan referendum. There was an absolute link between the timing of those Mm -hmm. things. And, you know, he wasn't returning to India and conducting assassinations or, you know, it, it all is so incredibly absurd on its face. And just to To take it one step further, one of the groups that's often accused of being a terrorist organization in the Indian media operating out of Canada is the World Sick Organization. It's actually a backbench panelist, Jaskaran Sandhu, (laughs) who used to be the head of the World Sick Organization. Mm -hmm. So basically, the Indian media has been accusing the backbench of harboring (laughs) terrorists, right? Like, this is the level of absurdity Mm -hmm. of these accusations get to. Mm -hmm. So they really cannot be trusted in any way. Hardeep Singh Nijar was killed for peacefully advocating 
for a separate six state. And like whatever you feel about that issue in particular, I think everyone in Canada agrees that we should have the right to talk about these mm-hmm. kinds of things. I mean, like we we don't like murder every Quebec separatist for good reason mm-hmm. because you know, advocating for for sovereignty is a basic political right. That's been one of the most absurd things that I've seen in the sort of storm of blue check BJP, you know, voters is basically saying like, well, Canada would never allow this sort of rhetoric ever in the context of its own politics. And it's like, we have a a, a party. We have a party like in the House of Commons that now that Anthony Rhoda resigned, like a block member is going to be speaker for a week or whatever. Like... Yeah, it's like great. We've had two referendums, right? Yeah, and yeah. Like, Actual ones that could have been binding. Like, it was, you know, as opposed to basically, like, what's a petition kind of going around in the diaspora? Actually, that brings me to one point that I really think is another myth that I've been seeing a lot in the Canadian media recently. It's it's this idea that nobody in India, no Sikhs are at all interested in Khalistan, that this is an entirely a diaspora issue. And while I would definitely agree there's probably much more support for Khalistan, for an independent Sikh state within diaspora communities. You know, Sikh nationalism takes many forms in India. It changes and shifts. And while there aren't many politicians or political parties that are advocating for an independent Sikh state in India right now, just like in Quebec, in which like the PQ has barely, you know, any seats in the Quebec legislature. It's not something we could say that Quebec, you know, separatism, Quebec nationalism is dead forever and nobody cares. It morphs, it changes, it expresses itself in different ways. You could argue that Francois Legault's, you know, dominance in Quebec is is a different representation of kind of Quebec nationalism. It's the same thing in India. Sikh nationalism has taken very different forms over you know, the last many centuries. The farmers' protests were in some ways an expression of Sikh nationalism. Earlier this year, Amritpal Singh, who's basically a preacher, started to gain quite a large following talking about, you know, Sikh sovereignty, even talking explicitly about separatism. It's not just the, the pesky folks in the diaspora who are kind of bringing this up and ruining it for everybody else, right? You know, this is a fundamental fact of Sikh existence in India and abroad. I want to pivot back to something that you were sort of getting at earlier, which is to say Canada is doing this thing where it's trying to pivot to India in terms of who its closest partner in Asia-Pacific is uh, as sort of part of a move away from China. But this is sort of throwing a bit of a wrench, I think, in I guess, what Trudeau's plans had been for the Indo-Pacific strategy, building the relationship with India, whatever. So Yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's a pretty big <laughs> wrench. It's a pretty yeah. big wrench. <laughs> so how is this going to impact Canada's relationship with India going forward? I just can't see how Canada can move forward with India as, as a kind of normal relationship at the moment. The Sikh community right now in Canada, the number one ask that people have is to pull away from the security agreement that Canada signed with India in 2018. You know, there were a lot of protests. There were a lot of people very upset at the time because we were worried about exactly this kind of thing because the Indian government, Indian media fabricate so many accusations, basically. You know, so I think it would make sense for Canada to limit Mm -hmm. their relationship in a lot of ways. You know, right now there's obviously the Indian government is not issuing uh, new visas to to Canadians. I, I can't imagine 
imagine that being a permanent state of affairs. There's hundreds of thousands of international students that have come over from Punjab specifically. You know, these are Indian Sikhs who are now studying in Canada. It's been it's been an absolutely massive influx. And, you know, I do worry about, like, how difficult this is going to make their lives just in terms of the logistics of it, you know, being able to go back and forth and that kind of thing. But, you know, I think the the kind of pivot to India is in some ways a mistake, right? Like, mm-hmm. we're getting into, like, the logic that everyone has is of a new Cold War in which we need to to realign against China. And I, I just don't think that that's a smart way to go, especially, you know, for, for Canada. I'm pretty pessimistic about this. You know, if you look at the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, you know, the, the Saudi dissident who was murdered by the Saudi government in Turkey, who is a, an American resident, right, and a, and a journalist. While the Americans were outraged for a little while, they have now are signing new agreements with Saudi Arabia. The, you know, relationship has basically been fully restored. Security partnerships are totally a go. You know, governments are much more willing to put kind of broad security interests over human rights all the time. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if Trudeau pivots back. I'm also pretty concerned about, you know, if Pierre Polyev becomes prime minister. Initially, he was, you know, he made, he said the right things in the House of Commons, basically standing, you know, saying this was outrageous. And then the very next day seemed to shift away. You know, that'll be a mistake. The pivot to India, I would say, has largely been, okay, we need to sort of bolster ourselves against China. There's this kind of new Cold War framing. But then it's like, there's foreign interference kind of no no matter where you look, right? So you're pivoting away from China because China has been engaged in interference. And there's kind of the shadow of the two Michaels and all of this stuff. But then, you know, we have interference from India. There's also concerns about interference from countries like Russia, Iran, whatever. There seems to be... This is just like a hot button issue right now, generally speaking, that we seem to be pathologically unable in Canada to defend ourselves against foreign interference or to not be pushed around in this sort of way. So what does the fact that there have been like so many of these types of stories coming out, I would say like over the past, I don't know, two, three years, it seems like there's really been a lot of them. What does this tell us about the state of Canadian democracy, security? It, it just feels bleak to me. <laughs> I mean, there's always been interference, right? I think there there is a newfound interest and appreciation for the kind of dangers of this. But it's not like foreign governments haven't meddled with especially diaspora communities mm-hmm. forever. I mean, this is what the Sikh community has been saying, that for decades and decades, we know we've been spied on, hassled, targeted, punished, right? I mean, Jagmeet Singh was denied a visa to go to India. He's basically will never be allowed to go back because he's spoken up about some of these issues. And that was, you know, like what, like eight years ago, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this this kind of stuff's been happening for a long time. So I think the idea that it's new is is not the case. And I do think a lot of it is fueled by this feeling that we're living in a, a new multipolar world and all these governments are trying to mess with us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So we are coming up on Election Day in Manitoba. If you're listening to this episode on the day of its release, the election is actually happening today, October 3rd. And the progressive conservatives, the current ruling party, and the NDP have been sort of like back and forth a bit. There have been a couple of election issues that have made this provincial election particularly worth looking at. So for a bit of background, the current premier, Heather Stephenson, came to power in 2021 when the former premier and leader of the PCs, Brian Pallister, resigned. I love Manitoba. And I believe Manitoba can be the fastest growing, most competitive province on its way to two million people strong. Stephenson is now facing Wab Kanu, the leader of the NDP in Manitoba. This election is about health care. We need to change the government in Manitoba so that we can get to work fixing the health care system. So it's progressive conservative versus NDP. There is a liberal party in Manitoba, but it only holds three seats. And so they're not really expected to be much of a factor in this election. This election is going to make Manitoba history. Either the province is going to elect a woman to the premier's office through a general election for the first time, or it will elect Manitoba's first First Nations premier. One of the biggest issues this election has been health care. The province has seen the closure of emergency room services, major staffing shortages, and funding cuts. And then there's the demand for the search of the Prairie Green landfill, where the remains of two First Nations homicide victims are believed to be buried. Just last week, protesters in Winnipeg continued to call for a search. If your granddaughter or your daughter was sitting in a landfill and nobody wanted to look for her, what would you do? Some protesters and activists have nicknamed the current premier Heartless Heather after she refused to greenlight the search based on safety concerns. And another hot-button issue that's popped up for this election is the quote-unquote parental rights debate that's currently raging across the country— And just in case you needed one more thing to care about this election, there's also been a raging opioid crisis plaguing the province. There are a lot of different issues to cover here, and Manitoba is not always something that those of us living in Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal pay attention to. So let's get into it and hear from people that are actually on the ground covering these issues every day. First off, we have reporter with APTN, Dennis Ward. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And from the Winnipeg Free Press, we have Dan Lett. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So for those of our listeners that are not in Manitoba, not, you know, just mainlining news about provincial politics there, why should we all be paying attention to this election? <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll give this the first try. So I'm from Toronto originally. I live in Winnipeg uh, by choice. I'm not, sh- like, I'm not sure there's a good answer to why people should care other than there's 1.3 million people in Manitoba, which is, you know, not a lot of people compared to maybe Ontario and Quebec and BC, but it is still 1.3 million people within the country. And it's a province with the highest proportion of its total population is Indigenous. And I think that also makes this an important place for the debate about reconciliation and Indigenous issues. My colleague, Nagan Sinclair, he and I do a podcast together. He feels comfortable in calling Manitoba ground zero in the debate about reconciliation because we live with it in a way that a lot of other provinces don't. So if you care about reconciliation and the national political sort of agenda, I think you should be 
concerned when 1.3 million people are about to make a decision about a new government? Yeah, I think for Indigenous people across the country, this is an important election. Uh, You mentioned that there was the rallies last week uh, in Manitoba, but they were actually straight across the country on Parliament Hill in Newfoundland and BC everywhere. Because as gross, in my opinion, as it is that this has become an election issue on whether to search for the remains of loved ones, uh, it's become a big election issue. And and the PCs even took out an ad trumpeting how they're not going to search the landfill, which is interesting for sure. We had the, the television debate last week, and the first thing that came up was the landfill issue again. And Heather Stevenson likes to uh, make it seem as though it's about safety, but there's always the quoting of the high end of what this search could cost, the $187 million, and that's thrown around a lot. And Given how much they're bringing it up, I, I'm guessing that you know they they have supporters that are backing that that idea of not searching or not spending that money, and so I think Indigenous people are are watching this election closely because that issue has become a big issue. I want to, I guess, like dive a, a little bit more into this specifically, like the demand for the search of the Prairie Green landfill, right? So. I know that you both mentioned reconciliation is a major issue in this election. This is a specific hot-button issue that Indigenous people and their allies have gotten really invested in. What are the other sort of issues, I guess, besides, like, is there anything besides just the PCs are concerned at the cost of searching the landfill? Is there any sort of other dynamic to the debate around this? Like, is it is it purely just a they don't want to spend the money? I think, you know, De- Dennis has made some great observations about the pro- the profile that this issue, the searching the landfill, has taken in the Tory campaign. Now, the Free Press, along with CTV News, we've just completed a poll that shows that actually there is support, a slight majority of Manitobans support searching the landfill. If I was to interpret the political calculus on this, and I think the Conservatives in their polling are probably getting the exact same results, I think the Conservatives believe that the province is polarized, and they think that the slight majority of people who support the landfill search are not people who are going to vote for them anyways. And I would say I don't think they're wrong. I think that people that they think are against the landfill search, and I will say as an aside too, It is actually, it's lamentable the way the progressive conservatives have misrepresented this debate, that it's going to cost $187 million. There are options that don't cost anywhere near that much, that it's too dangerous to do the search. The landfill and forensic archaeologists have all said that it is dangerous, but it's doable. It's doable because they do this work all over the world and it, it can be done. So. I think that the Conservatives are, are they're looking for an anti-reconciliation backlash. And they believe that the people who are against the landfill are likely to come into their camp and support them just on this issue alone. I guess we'll see. I mean, just the fact that, uh, you know, only a slight majority of people in this province support searching the landfill for people's missing loved ones, I think, speaks to a bigger issue in this province. But, you know, you you mentioned that reconciliation is a a big part of this campaign, and I don't actually think that it is in any way. It's There's this landfill issue, but, I mean, any time that Indigenous peoples come up in this uh, 
it's mentioning that the leader of the NDP is a, a thug or what have you. Um, the liberal leader during that televised debate said nobody's talking about reconciliation here. The premier during that time or Heather Stephenson during that debate kept mentioning, you know, that, oh, that's a federal issue. These are those indigenous peoples, those the feds have to deal with them. Why are you willing to put one hundred and eighty four million dollars and Manitoba workers at risk for a search without a guarantee? And there was also talk, you know, you said the first First Nations premier here, but he, he's not making much mention of that. Uh, there's not billboards out there saying you could make history here by electing the first First Nations premier. That's uh, not a front and center issue that the NDP are trying to play up either. Yeah, I want to kind of touch on what you mentioned about there's people sort of openly being hostile uh, in a way that's like very racially charged, I think, to Web Canoe. And some of the ads even that are being run have been pretty, I guess, aggressive and sort of dirty as far as political attack ads go. So what's the temperature of this campaign been like? And what specifically is Web Canoe's reputation like? Because I know... You know, despite the fact that it would be history making for him to be the first First Nations premier of Manitoba, he's not somebody who necessarily has a sterling reputation among indigenous communities either. Like he's sort of a complicated figure in a lot of ways. Yeah, he is a complicated figure. And um, I I think the, you know, the whether or not you support Wab Canoe as a an indigenous uh, or First Nations political leader or just political leader. It's a stress test on a number of issues to see whether or not they can embrace a First Nations man as the first minister of the province. Now, complicating matters, and you mentioned it, is the fact that there are significant constituencies within the Indigenous communities that are, you know, either openly hostile about WAB or very concerned about his background. Uh, 20 years ago, when he was a younger man, he had several run-ins with the law. Some of them resulted in criminal charges for which he's received a pardon. There's others for which there were a stay of proceedings. One of those involved allegations of domestic abuse. So he is a lightning rod for concern among all Manitobans. And, you know, this is for a lot of reasons, and not just because he's First Nations, but because of where he comes from and his his narrative. Yeah, if we're talking about, uh, you know, people who are running in this election, Regine Caron, who's running for the PC party against Wab Canoe in his riding, she's, she's run in a number of other elections. She's a current police officer and says that she is uh, Métis as well. And it would appear that her only purpose in this election is to be there to attack... Wob and his past. Her stuff is all that crime's going to get worse under Wob. I hear about Wob Canoe every day. His run-ins with the law, his bullying ways, even today. That's why I'm running against Wob in his own backyard. Because under the NDP, violent crime will only get worse. They're not in my riding, and I have bus shacks or, or advertisements from her saying how crime's going to get worse under Wob. And I don't live anywhere near their riding. I feel like it's been an ugly campaign. I mean, campaigns get ugly, but this one just feels like it's very personal. I don't know anybody who isn't wanting this election to be over, to be honest. Lots of nods, you know, on that one, Dennis, for sure. Uh, I want to kind of pivot back to talking about sort of, I guess, I mean, certainly 
appeals of, of candidates and candidates pass and all of that, it's it's being made into a major election issue, but it's not a policy issue per se. And so I want to pivot back to sort of what some of the policy issues are in this election. I want to talk healthcare because I know that's been a major campaign focus. So what have the NDP and the PCs been promising on the front of healthcare. I know that under the PCs, there's been a number of things like ER closures, staff shortages, the same sorts of problems that we're seeing um, all over the country and especially in sort of more rural and remote areas. What are both of the major parties promising and how have people been responding to that? The reality of healthcare in this country and in this province and the, the overarching concern that really, I think, nullifies a lot of the promises that have been made during the campaign is that there's a very good chance that we broke it (laughs) during the pandemic and afterwards. So Manitoba wasn't the only province, but it was one of the provinces that was trying to play loose and fast with healthcare funding before the pandemic. You know, we ran five years of healthcare budgets where the increase in funding was either zero or it was below the rate of inflation. And the end result of that is that when the pandemic hit, we had already deeply wounded the system. We had driven hundreds and hundreds of nurses out of the public system to work in the private system where they get more control over their working schedules. They get paid better money. You know, I was uh, I uh, we were hosting a campaign insiders panel on my own podcast and the NDP representative was a former Manitoba health minister, Aaron Selby. And I was saying, you know, like you guys have made a lot of promises about more doctors and more nurses, which is absolutely nothing happens without more nurses in particular. So you guys have said you're going to do it, but like, how can you do it? And she says, well, you know, we're just going to do it because that's what we do. Okay. Well, we all wish them luck, but I don't think any party has actually proven that they have a plan that's going to work. And there's a very good chance those nurses don't want to come back to work to the public system. You know, like it's, they could be gone, never to return. And there's no amount of money that would bring them back. That's how badly we've broken things. And I don't think that this is some conspiracy theory that, you know, this is perhaps a plan to move the public health care system further to private in terms of all kinds of different uh, services that the public system previously provided. I want to touch on something. It was, you know, the opioid crisis was mentioned briefly uh, by one of you and kind of what you mentioned was that it's been being framed predominantly as a crime issue. Obviously, I think there's been a real shift, I think, on the left and among some journalists in terms of covering the opioid crisis, covering drug use as a health issue as opposed to as a crime issue predominantly. So it's interesting to hear that it's been mainly being discussed as a crime issue in the context of this election. I want to hear a little bit more from either of you or both of you about what has the impact of the opioid crisis been like on the ground, particularly in Winnipeg? You know, I think Dennis alluded to this before. It hasn't been much of an issue. And I I also want to, I just want to clarify something. It's not an opioid crisis. I mean, that is part of the crisis, but it is a illicit drug addiction and overdose crisis. So many different forms of illicit drugs and alcohol. Alcoholism is out of control. You know, this is the legacy of the pandemic. If we can clarify this, an overdose crisis. We're certainly, uh, in terms of our per capita overdoses, we're holding our own. We're outperforming a lot of the medium and smaller size provinces 
And it's not, it's such a confounding issue because it's not necessarily directly tied to socioeconomic profile. There, there was a time when, like meth in particular, was very much a lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. That's not the problem now. Winnipeg EMS is responding with Narcan to overdoses in every neighborhood, in every area across the city. And in fact, uh, in some respects, the more money, disposable income you have to spend on drugs, the more likely you are to be caught up in this problem. And it's actually been both the NDP and the Liberals have said that they would open supervised consumption facilities in Manitoba. That's certainly part of it. Most parties have come forward with a pledge of increased support for mental health and addictions treatment, which is also definitely part of it. But I would say as well, too, that in the case of the progressive conservatives, they're also offering people a billion and a half dollars or so in tax cuts. There is a point at which when you combine the absence of healthcare professionals, the people who have left the province or or uh, left the public system, along with a massive, massive slice being taken out of government revenues. I really don't see where this kind of a problem is ever going to get the attention that it needs. Absolutely one of the worst uh, public health crises we've ever seen. And it really, I, I, you know, Dennis, you might disagree, but I, I just have been shocked at how little profile this has had. Nope, I would totally agree. I'd I mean, I, I assume those parties are for a safe injection site, but uh, I've not heard much about it. We know that the uh, PCs were not during their time in office. Their health minister pretended she went to a safe injection site, I do believe, out uh, on the West Coast and got called out for that. I want to pivot from this. To talk about actually, I guess, another issue that's sort of being discussed differently in different parts of the country and is unfortunately seeming like it maybe is going to become a much bigger issue than it really needs to be. This sort of parental rights movement of, I would say, socially conservative parents who are worried about queer and trans issues being discussed in schools. We've seen in New Brunswick and in Saskatchewan uh, conservative leaders, uh, premiers basically coming out and saying, you know, we are going to roll back protections for queer and trans students in schools. We are going to sort of, there's been talk of re-examining certain curriculum that deals with these sorts of social issues. There's been moves to require that schools contact parents if students wish to change their names and pronouns at school, all of these things. We've seen the PCs in Newfoundland and Labrador come out directly and say they did not support the One Million March for Children protests that happened recently. So they've taken a firm stance kind of in opposition to most conservatives that we've seen across the country. In Manitoba, the PCs have been kind of vague on this issue. They haven't said that they're going to follow suit the way that, you know, Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick and in Saskatchewan, the way that Things are blowing there. They also haven't done what the PCs in Newfoundland and Labrador have done and said, you know, we're not really interested in engaging on this issue. So uh, what do you both make of this? Like, is Manitoba a place where this could become a problem? I don't know. Do you guys have thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that the parental rights as a movement, and a, that's, a, you know, a slogan that once again is slopped over the gunnels from the United States, what's going on down there. You know, we had had a couple of flare-ups. We had a group of, I guess, what you could call parental rights activists went after the library board in Brandon, tried to get explicit 
or what they considered to be explicit school and library materials banned. We also had a, a similar attempt in the Louis Riel School Division here in Winnipeg. And uh, both of them, I think, resulted in a fairly strong community backlash against what these people were trying to do. Now, what's interesting is that we did like this, the emphasis that the progressive conservatives have put on this issue really came out of left field. I, I, I mean, it was a pre-writ announcement by the premier, premier at that time, PC leader now, to emphasize a, a pledge to enshrine parental rights in provincial legislation. Full stop, no further details. They have continued to make this the number one issue that in their advertising all over the city and province. We don't really know where it's going, but we do know that for a party that has a bad fiscal record, which has uh, compromised core services, uh, healthcare and education, they're campaigning on don't search the landfill and parental rights. Those are the, the two core narratives of their campaign. And I'm a sad journalist these days listening to, to the debate about this stuff because it's on both of the, these issues, it's not like people don't understand what it is. They they and they're being deliberately kept in the dark about the finer details. And that is that's making me even more sad. This is in all of your advertising, the the ad in the free press on the weekend, landfill at the top, this issue right below it. And the fact that you're this is one of your biggest pledges, but you're saying that you're not going to give any the finer details until after you've been elected. I mean, what that, that just doesn't sit well with me. If, if you've got great plans here, then let's hear what they are. Don't say, well, we'll have to tell you the details once we get elected. That, that's pretty vague to me. These things are pervasive. Uh, it preys on fears. It assumes that people are poorly informed, which they are. It takes advantage of the smash and grab nature of social media, where you don't have to provide a lot of details, but you can get sometimes a seismic reaction. So that you know, the concern is, and this relates to voter turnout. How many people are going to believe this? You know, how many people are going to buy into the worst parts of, of this issue? This is the first time this issue has been tested in an election campaign. So if I go back to your first question, why should people be concerned about the election in Manitoba? It's because parental rights is going to be on the ballot for the first time in this country. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. And we'll talk again in two weeks when Nora Viva and I will have returned from our sojourn to the West Coast. Uh, Backbench on Wheels is happening. We have made it happen. We're all very excited. Um, if you're listening to the episode on the day it comes out, we are going to be doing a live show in Vancouver today, uh, 6.30 p.m. at the Rio Theatre. Uh, please come see us. We will also be in Whitehorse on October 7th. Very, very exciting. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter, still at Backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Matea Roach. Dan, where can people find you? You can find me at winnipegfreepress.com, 
I'm on Twitter uh, or X or whatever it's being called this week. I am uh, at Dan Lett and on all major uh, podcast streaming platforms. I am part of the Negan and the Lone Ranger podcast. Please tune into that if you can. And Dennis, where can people find you? I'm uh, at Dennis Ward News on pretty much most platforms. And uh, you can see me on the TV on APTN National News and Face to Face, which debuts its 10th season tonight, also available as a podcast. Thanks also to Arshi Mann, who you heard at the top of the show. You can find him on Twitter at Arshi Mann. And stay tuned for the brand new season of Commons. The trailer drops on October 4th, and trust me, it's going to be cultishly good. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Matea Roach. Aurora Borealis, more commonly known as the Northern Lights, is a natural light display caused by disturbances in the magnetosphere as a result of solar wind. The magnetosphere is the region of the Earth's atmosphere in which charged particles are affected by the Earth's magnetic field, and that is as much science as I am interested in learning for one day. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azria with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofo, and our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugli. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.